You're listening to Fundraising Illuminated, a podcast where development officers, advancement services professionals, and other fundraising leaders offer their views on subjects related to fundraising. I'm your host, Erin Lynch-Moran, a partner and co-founder of The Solus Group. We are a fundraising analytics and data modeling firm. If this is your first time listening, welcome. Please be sure to subscribe so you won't miss an episode. Let's be honest. It's difficult attracting and retaining excellent development teams, even in the best of times. With so many universities in perpetual campaign mode, the race for talented development staff has always been intense. Add to that the Great Recession and a workforce craving job opportunities that afford them work-life balance, and we can see how keeping talented staff engaged and happy has never been more important. That's why today I'm sitting down with Erin Hall-Westfall, Director of Talent Management for the University Development and Alumni Relations Office at the University of Cambridge in England. Erin has spent much of her career leading talent management and career initiatives for alumni and development teams at great institutions like Cambridge, the University of Michigan, and Northwestern University. With the race to attract and keep talented advancement staff ever more apparent, I asked Erin about how to identify the best candidates for fundraising positions and how to keep them engaged and invested in their jobs. All right, Erin, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Absolutely. I wanted to ask you about screening candidates for fundraising. It's really difficult to screen candidates for fundraising positions because, as you probably know, experience alone doesn't always paint a full picture. Somebody can have years of fundraising experience and not be effective. Are there certain attributes that you think are valuable to look for when you're looking for major gift officers? Yes, my short answer to that is absolutely. I think focusing on attributes or competencies is a really smart thing for our profession to do. I think it allows for us to actually support more non-traditional fundraising candidates who Mm -hmm. maybe bring competencies from different professions or experiences. And it's great to have fundraising experience and to be kind of a traditional fundraiser. I don't want to take anything away from that, but I think there's a lot of opportunities to create more diversity, more experiences into our field that could benefit the profession. So I think about the best fundraisers that I've seen over the years and They all have similar things in common. So I think first and foremost is just an innate curiosity. They're just naturally curious about people because I think, again, so much of the work that a good fundraiser is doing is obviously meeting with people, hearing about their experiences and being able to kind of match their experiences with the interests and the needs of the organization. So just that natural curiosity. And I think people talk a lot about interpersonal skills, which is, you know, absolutely important. I would say... Of those, I think listening is an underrated, but really, really important attribute. And again, I think people think about fundraisers as talking about the organization and talking about the needs. And and actually, I think the best fundraisers listen really well. And they listen a lot more, at least initially, than they do talk. Another one that I think is really important is just flexibility or adaptability. And a good example of that is fundraisers going into relationships with um, potential donors, with prospects, and having a really good sense of kind of what that approach might be. This also plays out, I think, certainly with academics. And maybe being in a meeting with a donor and realizing this isn't actually going to be the right approach and needing to pivot in the moment, that's a skill set. And not everybody does that really well. I think that's another one. And then there's definitely something about drive and being able to follow up and follow through and just having that grit where if you get a no or if you get 
no, not right now, or you have a really bad experience with a potential gift, you can get back up and keep going. And that's really important. Tenacity. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I've always noticed working with development officers that the ones that I admire and tend to think are more successful tend to be optimistic. Mm, Absolutely. Um, Yeah. And so I think that might go into that tenacity because they ultimately they're optimistic enough that they don't fall apart at the first no. They think that there might be a yes down the line. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's just a good attribute for all of our colleagues. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Yes. So I'm sure you've heard people talk about this concern that there will be mass resignations from jobs post-pandemic shutdown and people thinking about what it is that they want out of their jobs. Fundraising was already in a bit of a staffing crisis because for a long time there have been more jobs than people who Mm -hmm. are qualified to fill Mm -hmm. them. So obviously this is going to put even more of a strain on organizations. So what do you think some of the ways are that organizations can position themselves as an employer of choice when they're competing for job candidates? I think the obvious answer to that right now is flexible working. And I just think that organizations and institutions, again, whether fundraising or not, who can offer colleagues either, maybe it's not 100% remote, but flexibility, hybrid working, I think that people who can do that are above and beyond other organizations. Obviously, working remotely in a pandemic is not <laughs> is not the same as working remotely, not in a pandemic, should be at least. So I think organizations that are willing to try that, especially those who can even do more than two days out, three days in, people who can do more than that, I think they're going to have a foot ahead of everybody else. And I think that's obviously a hot topic that lots of organizations are trying to sort through, especially when you're in higher ed and you have an entire university, some that have always worked the, the way they've worked and they're kind of steeped in bureaucracy, it can be hard to try to do that within that kind of setting. But I think shops that can do that are, are going to be really far ahead. I think the other things would be opportunities to, so I'm obviously big on learning and training. Fundraising organizations are doing a lot of that now. So maybe it's not as unique as it used to be, but that are providing those investments in their staff and can demonstrate that as part of the recruiting process. And then the hiring process is really important. And I think the transparency and trust and communication, I think those were always important, but maybe even more so now when people are starting to return to the office is just that do what you say you're going to do as an organization and create an environment that is supportive and that's inclusive. And I think that opportunity to be open and trust colleagues is important. I think everybody kind of says they are, but I think it's probably more few and far between. When I think about colleagues I've worked with over the years, what were the reasons they left for another organization? And obviously there's a huge spectrum of reasons. But one of the things that I do think is maybe unique to higher ed is just, is I've said this word a couple of times now, but the, the kind of process heavy bureaucratic length of time to get things done within a yes. higher ed institution. And that's not just with fundraising, obviously there's, and, and there's nuances to that, but I do think that can get frustrating to people. And so I think if organizations can look at their own processes or can think about how do they approach those? How do they talk about that when they're looking at bringing new people on board? I think mm. for experienced fundraisers, like that actually, that could go a long way if you can actually follow through with it. Yeah. Which is, yeah. a little bit, I hadn't thought about that before, but I was kind of like, hmm, actually, 
I think people yeah. who bet who worked in higher ed would really value that. If you know, if, I do too. So, yeah, yeah. That's uh, higher ed is so bureaucratic, and I remember when we started our company the feeling of just sort of buoyancy of being able to kind of make a decision and do something yes. rather than <laughs> having to ask so many folks and so it's no offense. Yeah. And it's great. It's great to have consensus building. That's lovely, but you're right. It does. It does sometimes start to feel like you're just bogged down. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think the higher, the more advanced in your career you get, assuming with that comes management responsibility or leadership. You know, I do think you get more and more kind of in that, whether you like it or not. And so, you know, I've, I've met a lot of fundraisers over the years who get into that space and decide, you know what, actually, I just want to get back to the frontline work where I could kind of do what I loved and didn't have to necessarily. <laughs> right. Getting back to the basics, right? Yeah, exactly. So recently, there's been some talk about trying to quantify development officer turnover. Our mutual friend, David Lively, wrote an article recently for The Chronicle that provided some research on that that said that there can be a significant monetary loss for organizations. Mm -hmm. And then the theory is that it's because it's a relationship business yeah. and it takes people a long time to build those relationships. So assuming that that's the case, which does make sense, that turnover is a major hindrance in a fundraising shop, what are some of the things that organizations can do to mitigate the risk of losing people once they've brought them on board? So it's a, it's a great question, and I don't think there's any kind of silver bullet by any means. So one of the things we're working on right now, and I think most strategic organizations are thinking about, is succession planning. And you can't always predict when you're going to lose somebody, but generally you may know who might be ready for the next thing. And so succession planning is critical and not just having a plan in place, but starting to create learning plans, development plans, you know, what are the gaps that potential successor has? And it doesn't mean that it's going to be a seamless transition, but it does mean that organizations aren't necessarily then on their back foot, caught off guard with no idea of what to do. The other really important aspect of that, which is related to that, is knowledge transfer. And I've seen that happen when I was at Michigan, particularly with very senior level fundraising leaders who have decades of relationships. And, and so in that example, you have time, right? You have time to plan for transition, but that knowledge transfer experience was really interesting. And just like we were talking about earlier with attributes and competencies, a lot of really great fundraisers they do what they do and they might not be able to say, here's why I do it or here's how I do it. And right. so actually a colleague of mine kind of went through a storytelling, almost an inter interview process of, you know, talk about your work, talk about, and was able to pull out through this generative interviewing, all of the knowledge and all of the competencies that we then needed to build up and either potential internal people or external people to fill that. And that was really fascinating. And I think you know, organizations don't always have the time, but I think just as much as you can plan around that succession planning is key. I think yeah. the other thing which organizations always say, but I'm not sure always just happens as much in practice is ensuring that there's not only one relationship with donors or prospects. I mean, at least for your large donors, there's not a solo fundraiser who's managing that because then when you do lose them, you're kind of back to square one in terms of building back that relationship. So trying to right. 
create multiple touch points. And depending on the prospect, they may already have that, but trying to create more opportunities so that it's not that person leaves and then the relationship's lost. Yeah. All good food for thought. And you're right. People talk about that a lot, but in practice, it's, it can be kind of tricky. And it's so valuable when there are multiple people that can help carry the load. You may even find sometimes that if you're working with a fundraising team and you lose one person, you may want to replace that person with somebody from the outside, but you may want to transfer some of their prospects to people from the inside. Yeah, exactly. Of those people. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So managing major gift officers can be difficult since managers are rarely in a position to see them in action. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. you can't kind of be a fly on the wall all the time. So if a manager suspects that their employee could improve their skills as a major gift fundraiser, what are some ways that they can coach them to better performance without being physically with them all the time? Mm. Yeah. So it, it's a great question. I have found that even experienced fundraisers can struggle at different institutions because they might have had lots of fundraising experience. We tend to kind of underestimate that experienced fundraisers also need a learning plan or an onboarding orientation plan for new institutions because mm -hmm. there's nuances, there's different relationships, there's different unwritten rules, if you will. And so I think early on kind of ensuring that that's happening. And and I think as people move on within their role, and again, this is not just for fundraisers, but really timely feedback is important. That's a lot harder for people than it, mm -hmm. than it sounds. And I think timely feedback with many examples, sometimes people want that. And just not sugarcoating or kind of shying away from hard feedback. I think that's, it's hard for people to do that. And at the end of the day, that doesn't do anybody any good. Yeah. Fundraiser and or the organization. So I think, as you said, you can't be a fly on the wall, you can't see them. I think a lot more time and effort spent with people early on. I mean, at Cambridge, we talk about really it's a good three years. And I'm sure, you know, you guys know this from your experience, a good three years before a fundraiser is completely effective. Right. Um, so, you know, that's a long time. Yeah, it is. <laughs> and it's a, it is. it's a lot of investment, you know, and it's a lot of time investment for people who are, who are also managing prospects and are busy, but it's really important. Yeah. Um, so I'm, again, kind of saying things I think that are obvious, but I just think it's easy to kind of fall down on that just for lack of time. Yeah, it may be obvious, but I think a lot of people don't do it. I think giving constructive feedback is one of the hardest things people yeah. can do as managers and do well, yeah. because there's a tendency to want to, usually I think people avoid doing it yeah, um, because it's uncomfortable. And then invariably something goes really wrong and then you're in a bad situation and the stakes are really high. Whereas if it's something that you can just bring up as you go along casually, you can kind of address things before they become an issue. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure you've read too, I've read a lot of articles about organizations trying to just move away completely from annual performance reviews with this idea that that should be happening on a regular basis. I'm not sure that's going to happen anytime soon, <laughs> but it's a good principle. It, it's a really good principle of actually the annual performance re review. It just doesn't have the weight that it does if you're having that regular consistent feedback, both positive, but also here are things you need to look at or improve upon. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I think the thing that always strikes me every time I've been through a performance appraisal process is just how long it takes. Yeah, absolutely. 
It takes so much productivity away from people. And often it's coming at a bad time for the fundraising cycle. (laughs) You know, (laughs) know. it's always towards the end of the fiscal year. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I know. Yeah. I know. I know. Exactly. Yeah. We we experience that same thing here. And, and, you know, if you have a fundraising manager who has a large team, they're potentially doing anywhere (laughs) 10 to 20 performance appraisals. And that takes a ton. If you're doing it well, that takes a ton of time. It does. Yes. Yeah. So I, I would personally love to see them go away. And <laughs> I think that there there's ways that you can encourage and build into your culture regular feedback without right. having to do that. Right. A- absolutely. Yeah. Obviously, the best way to maintain strong relationships with prospects is to have the same person in the relationship. So you want to retain your top development officers. How can an organization increase their retention with employees? Yeah. So I just, I don't know if it's new or not. I just, somebody sent me a link to the article in Forbes about about empathy being the top leadership trait. I don't know if you've seen that or not. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, although that's specific to leaders, I think it's, I think it's really relevant right now as we're talking about retention because for me at least and i think a lot of people feel similar is just the silver lining over this entire (laughs) crazy pandemic is i feel like we've just gotten to know each other in a different way when you see cats and children and dogs (laughs) you just i think people there's just a human side to all of us and i do think that empathy piece is really important as we think about retention because i think when people feel like their organization or their line manager or their employer cares about them actually as a person, yeah. I think that's incredible. And people will stay for that more than they'll stay for money or a bonus or so absolutely. It'll be interesting to see how that, you know, plays out as we move ahead here. I think the other thing too is I always say to people, you almost have to think about retention from the moment you start recruiting for a role, because I think doing things in that process realistic job previews, being open about here's opportunities, here's some of the challenges, really making sure that you do the best you can. Obviously hiring is never, (laughs) is not an exact science, but in getting the right person for the right role and making sure that you have the right person in the right role. I think that that, you know, helps so much with retention because a lot of times you just don't have the right person in the right role. I also think career pathing, which takes a lot of time, but organizations that can create really transparent, clear career paths for fundraisers, but also for non-fundraisers helps with retention as well, because people can, they can see where they can go. They can see kind of the impact that they can make. You know, I have no great answer of how to do this, but I do think we have to find ways to promote fundraisers without making them go into management. Because I think yep, they're very different skill sets. And I just think some of your best fundraisers are not your best managers. And I haven't seen organizations really be able to move the needle on this. Not because people don't want to, but it's you don't always have a lot of other roles that you can create or the business need. But it is, I think, a challenge in our profession. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think one of the things that can just make it hard is, and this is coming back to bureaucracy, is that a lot of organizations have these rules regarding salary classifications and things like that. And those things can be based on ways of working from back when people had a factory. I think you're right that it's time to take a look at that whole model and rethink 
how we evaluate the value of different positions. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And then I guess the only other thing I would say is talking to people. So there's something called state interviews. So learning from people, what drives them? What are they excited about? What do they like best about their role? What do they not like about it? And trying to do that more proactively on a regular basis, because again, then you probably are better prepared for at some point when that person is ready to leave and take on something else. So that's another way to think about it a little bit differently. I love that idea. And I think people are surprisingly more open than one might imagine in terms of, you know, what they like and what they don't like and where they want to go next. And, and sometimes you can do that at your organization and sometimes you can't. The last thing I would say is just, and I've talked with some talent management colleagues throughout the years, is just how do we create more creative opportunities for retention? Because a lot of organizations are as included. I mean, we just don't have the resources from a financial standpoint. And all of the research shows that it's not generally salary driven anyways. But one of the things I've talked about with colleagues is could you do sabbaticals. So, you know, as academics do, could you actually do sabbaticals for staff based on longevity or tenure, exchange programs between organizations, between institutions? So just thinking about how do we infuse a little bit more creativity into it, which I think would be would be great. So I think that is really clever, actually, because I have on a few occasions had opportunities to be thanked or recognized for work done and have often felt like if an organization is going to quote unquote, thank me, I'd like to be involved in helping them think about things that would truly feel good. And I think number one is the time back in your day, you know, just spend a little time at home with the family, because that's something that if you're working really hard, you often don't get enough of. And meanwhile, you know, to be invited to an event, to thank people, it's just another thing you have to go to, you know, (laughs) which is a really good point. I mean, what do people respond to? And what, yeah, yeah, to your point, what's going to make it meaningful for you, not necessarily the colleague next to you. Yeah, I think is really, that's important. Absolutely. One of the things that I've been wondering lately is whether organizations, I'm specifically thinking about colleges and universities, whether some of those organizations that have a really difficult time attracting talent because of where they're located Mm -hmm. might find that they have an easier time if they allow for remote work. And and that could make things much more competitive because a lot of places, you know, if you're located in a desirable place, it's just so much easier to recruit people and I think it kind of levels that playing field. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I remember when years ago, when I was at Northwestern is the competition for talent in Chicago was, Mm -hmm. you know, incredible. And all of the institutions were competing against one another. Whereas if you then take that out and say, okay, actually you can work from anywhere in the country, it's just the the opportunity, the opportunities for employees, but also the opportunities for the organization in terms of the type of talent. And just right. different talent. I think it's a really interesting thing. Yeah. I, I, I'm curious to see what happens in the next few years, because I think what we may see is that some places really want to go back to a traditional model. Other places want to maybe lessen their real estate costs or whatever yeah. and explore yeah. that. I think that over time, it's going to be something that employers have to do in order to yeah. compete. Yeah. 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 I, I think you're right. And I do think, I mean, as much as I do think hybrid flexible working is great, there are things that are better in person. And so 
can you replicate those over time? I mean, we talk a lot about collaboration and one of our colleagues at the, one of the academics at the business school presented at our annual uh, learning conference this year. And she talked about serendipity. And I thought that was so wise of like, you just lose these serendipitous moments that you just can't recreate. You'll never recreate those. And so, so yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of, a lot of specifics around it that organizations kind of have to think through, but yeah, but I think you're right. Absolutely. I think within a few years time, you will have to be doing some form of it. Well, Erin, I really appreciate your joining us. It's been wonderful having you. Allow me to make a quick correction. I referenced an article from the Chronicle of Philanthropy that I said was written by David Lively, who's the Senior Associate VP at Northwestern University. I should have said he was the co-author, along with his collaborator, Naveen Vinakanda. Naveen is the Executive Director for Prospect Management and Analytics at Wake Forest University. And it was he who helped refine the calculations that were so important to the article. I'm going to leave a link to that article as well as the Forbes article about empathy in the episode transcript. Also, I'm excited to announce that this podcast is going to go on a little hiatus while we work on a whole new show format. We'll still be having conversations about important topics in fundraising, but my hope is that you'll find the show to be a little more entertaining and informative, and hopefully the episodes will be a little more frequent. So stay tuned for that. Meanwhile, I want to thank you all for listening and wish you and your families a safe and relaxing holiday season. Thank you for listening to Fundraising Illuminated. We hope you'll join us for more engaging conversations on development topics. This podcast is produced by The Solace Group, a proud Tableau partner and fundraising analytics firm. At Solace, we take the stress out of fundraising by helping our clients find their best prospects, manage their portfolios proactively, and make sure they take advantage of fundraising opportunities through the use of analytics tools. If you'd like to be a guest on Fundraising Illuminated, or if you'd like to share your thoughts on what our guests have to say, please visit our website at www.thesolusgroup.com and click on the link that says podcast. Thank you again for joining us and have a great rest of your day.